So your ability to uh, look into the future and make plans based on what you see is this cool function that's housed in the prefrontal cortex uh, and it's part of what psychologists call your executive function, your ability to look into the future and plan. Um, and the distance that you can kind of generally look is said to be your event horizon. Um, and they judge different people by their event horizon, how far in the, in the future you look. Um, so if you're able to look like a couple years in the future and make concrete plans that actually affect the way you live today, then uh, and you do that on a regular basis, you're said to have a really uh, big event horizon. Um, and if you pretty much have no idea what's happening tomorrow um, and uh, you live each day as though the future doesn't exist, then you are my people um, and you have a virtually no event horizon whatsoever. Um, and I'm actually in the process of trying to stretch my event horizon right now. Um, but as we vacationed uh, a couple weeks ago, I was taken back to one of our earlier vacations um, where my lack of event horizon um, came back to bite us. Uh, in fact, on our this last vacation we took, Esther had reserved and paid for our hotels like months and months before, like the ones we were going to hit on the way there, months and months before we actually needed them. And she does this for two reasons. Number one, um, she doesn't like the fact that when we're on vacation, I have a tendency to want to cover the most amount of miles in the shortest time possible. And so I do this several different ways. First, by driving way too fast. I make everybody nervous. Um, and second, by skipping bathroom breaks. That's a whole other story I'll tell sometime. Um, and then uh, third is by driving deep into the night after the kids go to sleep. Like that's my like golden time when it's quiet. The sun's not shining in my eyes. I can make some miles. That makes us really nervous. And so... Uh, so what she's done to combat that is set a destination, book a hotel, and say that's as far as you can go this day. So there's no reason to rush. We'll get there by this time. Just, you know. And, uh, and this is the second reason she does this is because of Macon, Georgia. Um, we were on an earlier vacation, and uh, we are uh, <clears throat> driving, and I'm in that groove. You know, I'm like just getting as far as I can. You know, the kids are going to the bathroom in bottles. Like we're just, we're making time. That's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother story. Certain kids can't aim, and that gets disastrous. I mean, it's it's like a fire hose got set loose in the van. It was terrible. That's a whole nother story. But um, but we're driving, and and I'm in Macon, Georgia, and I see a sign that was like hotels twenty five dollars a night. You know, which I was like, oh, that's a great deal. Of course, I'm not thinking about the fact that I know those signs in Kansas City, and I know the neighborhoods they're in. But of course, that doesn't dawn on me. I'm just like, this is amazing, twenty five bucks. So we pull off. <laughs> I go in. And I should have known because I pull in the parking lot, I walk in, and the guy that's, you know, running the, the motel thing is standing behind like three inches of bulletproof glass. And you got to slide everything through this little, you know, thing. And so I was like, 25 bucks, that's awesome. He gives me the key. The second he gives me the key, this other little dude with all gold teeth comes running in the room. And I can't even say in the middle of a sermon the kind of language he was using. But he was like, some dude just put a gun to my face and took all my stuff. He went up in room 305, called the police and blah, blah, blah. And I'm listening to this guy lose his mind. And I look at the at the, the guy running the thing and he just shakes his head at me. Like, don't even ask for your money back. I was like, oh, man. And so this guy's jumping up and down. The other dude's calling 911. I go out to the van with Esther and all my kids. I was like, okay, so here's the deal. The police are going to be here any minute. We are going to follow them to our room. We're going to duck in, we're going to lock the doors, and we're going to pray for the van, and we're not coming back out till tomorrow morning. Um, so you need to take everything you need for the night, 
And sure enough, like a SWAT team shows up. And so we just, me, how many kids did we have at the time? We had nine kids at the time. So me, we look like ducks, like following the cops. Like the cops go by, I get in behind the cops, Esther gets in behind me. We are chucking to our room. They, they pass our room, so we put the key in and duck in, slam the door, and we huddle up with the kids. I'm like, God, please let our van be there in the morning. Let all the tires be on it. Let the catalytic converter be on it. Let everything be on it. And, uh, and I didn't sleep much that night in Megan, Georgia, but Esther, we're laying in bed. The kids are finally asleep, and Esther's laying there. She goes, we will never do this again. <laughs> so from then on, she has pre-booked every stop, and like, I will, you will not get to pick the hotels ever again. Was, and then on the way back we, of that same trip, we tried it again, and we landed in some place that made you pay a deposit to get the remote for the TV. So that tells you how nice that was. And there's a whole other story with that one that I won't even get into. Whew. So yeah, um, so uh, Esther has a better event horizon than me, let's just say that. <laughs> so um, we're in week seven of what was originally going to, and this was originally going to be our final week um, of this series, uh, and it's been one of my favorite series so far, and, uh, and I, I think we're going to be in it for a little while. I don't think we're going to get out yet, um, but this morning kind of wraps up the you know, the deeply profound uh, outline I came up with, which was just something I pulled off of like encyclopedia.com. They were like the seven things that every kingdom has. I was like, oh, that's a great outline. I need seven weeks. So not so profound, but it's been fun. Um, and, uh, and I don't want to spend a lot of time reviewing today because we've got a lot of ground to cover. But if you've missed anything, it's all on the YouTube channel. You should probably go back and catch up. But this is Pentecost, like I said, um, the birthday of the church. And it's one of the deepest and richest holidays on the church calendar, I think, um, because... Um, there are a lot of truths in scripture that have multiple meanings, um, uh, that, but you kind of got to dig them out. Like the, the ark, Noah's ark, you know, it's, it's a, it's a kind of a picture of Jesus. Everybody that's in the ark gets saved from judgment. Everybody that's outside the ark gets, you know, judged. And it's, so it becomes this really clean, neat picture, um, of the way, uh, to see that God has always been kind of protecting his people the way he does with Jesus. But you kind of have to exercise what the ancient monks used to call holy imagination to, to get there. You kind of got to think outside the box a little bit. But Pentecost is different because all the connections to Pentecost are historical. Like you're not trying to connect vague dots. They're, it's, it's historical stuff. On the 50th day, the Pentecost, the word Pentecost just means 50th. So it's not like a big fancy word. It just means the 50th. On the 50th day after the very first Passover. So God, you know, uh, sends the destroyer. And if you use the blood of the, the lamb on your doorpost, God would pass over. Fifty days later, God pours out his presence with wind and noise and fire on this mountain called Sinai to give his people the Torah. And so he comes, he gives uh, Moses the Ten Commandments, and, he, and, uh, and it's 50 days after <coughs> Passover. And then 1,500 years later, God's spotless lamb was sacrificed on Passover, um, so we're back on that same calendar date. And then 50 days later, at the festival of Pentecost, when, when the city is full of Jews from all over the Roman Empire um, who are in town celebrating, uh, and they're celebrating the fact that God poured out His Spirit 1,500 years ago on a mountain, uh, and again, God does it um, with wind and fire and, and, and loud noises. God pours out His Spirit on His people officially birthing the church. And so there's, there's no like vague connections to make. It's, it's literally in the, in the calendar that this happens on the same day God did it 
last time, which is super cool. So Pentecost is basically the only holiday in the church calendar that directly coincides with one of the Jewish holidays, which is kind of cool. Um, there's other ones that are kind of close, you know, like Hanukkah and Christmas and, and uh, Passover and Easter. And, you know, they're, they're kind of close. And every once in a while, they'll overlap a little bit. But Pentecost is a day that the Jews celebrate. And on that same day, the Christians celebrate it. So it's kind of a neat holiday. It's the only one like that. And granted, we have different things in mind when we do it. But it's, uh, it's kind of neat. And I, and I don't think we make a big, deal enough, a big enough deal about it in evangelical circles. I assume it's because of that pesky speaking in tongues thing that happened that we all get afraid of. And so we stay away from, like if you mentioned Pentecost, we've got to talk about that. And so we, we, we stay away from it. But, um, but, uh, but I think this day is huge. I think this is a gigantic day on the church calendar. Um, and like I said, everything that Jesus had, had told his people um, was bottlenecked into this day. So every like parable about, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like that he wanted his disciples to go enact, um, had to wait, go and do likewise, had to wait. Jesus's speech about giving them the keys of the kingdom had to wait. And even the great commission, which is not only kind of the marching orders of the church, but a lot of people consider it their own personal marching orders had to wait. Nothing could move. Literally everything Jesus said and commanded and sent, uh, in the, in his, three and a half years of ministry were all stoppered in this event. Like nothing could happen. Do not do anything until this happens. And this is what he said. Um, uh, once he uh, was eat, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but you in just a few days will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this like passage um, actually makes me feel like real anxiety. Um, before Jesus was crucified, the disciples fairly regularly asked him, you know, questions about when the kingdom is coming and when is it finally going to come and when are you finally going to do things? They would argue over who was going to have what job once the kingdom was, was finally established. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was so like anxious, he started swinging a sword around like, let's get this thing going and cut off a dude's ear. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And then... They see the resurrected Jesus. Like, if ever there feels like a time, what is stopping us now? I mean, uh, this is finally solid proof that the kingdom was destined to succeed. If if uh, if death doesn't even stop the ruler, if they like kill the ruler and he gets back up, like, how could you not win? Like, it's time to go. Um, so they're chomping at the bit, and Jesus goes, "But wait, not yet, not now." Uh, and, and what does Jesus do with all of their enthusiasm and anticipation? He, uh, uh, I'm, I'm switching to a word for word translation here because not the one we usually use because I don't want to miss this. He said, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you have heard from me. Wait. God, I hate that word. That is like the worst word. Ever. We talked a few weeks ago about the day Jesus calls Peter, um, and Jesus, you know, borrows Peter's boat, and then uh, pull, Peter pulls this miraculous catch of fish um, out of the water. And uh, and I have a sneaking suspicion, based on Peter's reaction to that moment, um, that uh, uh, that Jesus he was ready for Jesus to restore the kingdom right then. You know, he's like, this has got to be the dude. Like, finally, it's here, and. Uh, and then Jesus tells him, no, wait, you got to wait for a minute. 
which is not a, my strong suit. A few weeks ago, um, S and I were laying in bed chatting um, before we needed to get up, and I really needed to get up and get moving. And and uh, but we were trying to enjoy that peace, like before the kids wake up, when you're just laying there, like in the quiet, which is awesome. And uh, and S says, "Hey, not right now, because we don't have time to unpack it, but uh, we need to talk." And like all that fear like flooded me. I was like, are you breaking up with me? Like, like, I had that like, we need to talk line, you know, like, oh no. And, uh, and, uh, and she was like, no, we just need to talk about some stuff and, and, uh, and we don't have time to unpack it right now, but I wanted to tell you so I didn't forget. I was like, okay, in the future, um, if we don't have time to unpack it right then, please don't tell me right then. Like I, I'm better off not even knowing, you know, that there, but, uh, but so this moment in Acts when, when, when Jesus, when everything is coming to a head and everything is happening and Jesus says, sweet, now just sit and wait. Just sit and wait. And here's the thing. Uh, we know the history that it didn't, they didn't have to wait for long. It was fairly quick. They didn't really know that. Like they didn't really know exactly how long it was going to be. For all they knew, they might have to wait a year or, you know, they had, they, uh, you know, they all had all this anticipation and they were just saying, you know, and Jesus is like, just wait. For however long it takes, just wait until it gets here. And that goes straight to all my weaknesses. But as we know, the Holy Spirit did fall in power. Um, and however long they waited, once the ball was rolling, it did not stop rolling. It just rolled. The disciples stumbled out of this prayer meeting and 3,000 men, and who knows how many women and children, um, get saved just like that. And so literally it goes from uh, this crazy small prayer meeting to the church being off and running like uh, head first. And, uh, and what I thought what I, I was going to talk about this morning um, is this passage that Luke gives us as kind of a snapshot of what that looked like. He gives us this kind of pause um, in the middle of the, the kind of dynamic narrative to go, here's what that looked like after that cataclysmic day. I'm going to read it. It's in Acts 2. If you want to follow along in your own uh, Bible or app, I'm going to start at verse 42, but it'll also be on the screen. It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. The, the, then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all uh, who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and in the breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this is the word of the Lord. And I said, um, I thought I'd be parking here this morning because um, the element of kingdom living that we're talking about this week, the last piece of that kind of seven part outline I generically pulled out of a, a website, um, uh, brought the seventh element is culture, that every kingdom has a culture. Uh, every kingdom develops, you know, an atmosphere or a style or whatever you want to call that. This turns out to be um, the element that most anthropologists, sociologists, historical psychologists are most interested in um, because culture is the day-to-day life, like the uh, day-in-the-life type stuff. Like, what, what, what was it like to live there. In other words, um, what was it like to live in that kingdom? Uh, what did life look like for the average person? What customs developed? Uh, that kind of thing. Um, this is the culture of a kingdom. 
In fact, it's kind of fascinating if uh, a lot of historians have, have taken some of the most ancient writings from Mesopotamian and Canaanite cultures back when Israel was being formed. And a lot of the stuff in Torah was also happening in other religions. Um, a lot of the things that all the religions of that area did. And so some historians have taken out the things that were, you might say, generic to all the faiths in that area. And it really highlights the things that were different about the Jews. It's kind of cool to know you know, uh, what they did that everybody did because it really shows you what made them truly different from any other faith um, in the in the area. And those things were dramatically different from every other faith. And so there's no way they just picked those up, you know, uh, hodgepodge from other faith systems. Those were things that God gave directly and were like, but you will not do this or you will not do that. And it's, it's, it's kind of a neat comparative study. Um because they had a total different culture. They were forming a whole different kind of people um, with, with what God had given them. So if you're reading a history book uh, and a, about a particular kingdom, uh, everything else we've talked about so far would be like on the first page. Like this was the king. This is the population. This is a map of the area. Like uh, this is some of their main the style of government and their rules and regulations. And then the whole rest of the article would be about the culture. Like what was it like to live there? In that place. Um, and so it feels like what we're doing here in, in, in what Luke is doing here in Acts 2 um, is frankly giving us the culture of the church. This is what it looked like. These are the things that happened. He's been telling us kind of the narrative. You know, this happened and this happened and this happened. And then he pulls out for a minute and goes, you know, and here's what the overview, the culture was like. Because frankly, there's uh, so much going on in this passage that we could unpack it for weeks. This isn't just a, a narrative piece of the story. Um, and as I said, I thought we were going to be doing that this morning. But as I dove in, um, I feel like rather than kind of breaking this passage down into its component parts for our examination, we needed to focus on just how much this movement of the Holy Spirit changed the, the absolute everyday nature of life for those who followed it. It changed everything. Um, and so I want to look back at the uh, maybe the very beginning of of Peter's sermon that led to three thousand that led three thousand men um, plus women and children to faith in Jesus. So I'm going back a little bit in chapter two from what we just read, uh, and just catch the very beginning of this sermon. The arrival of the Holy Spirit was such a noisy affair um, that people from all over Jerusalem came to figure out what was going on. Um, the people who had been in the upper room. Um, were not necessarily in full control of their faculties yet. Um, and the situation seemed obvious. If you've ever been around drunk people, um, you know that it can be a noisy affair. Voices get raised, things get broken. It's just noisy. So the crowd came and it was noisy and there's people acting goofy and they just assumed that everybody was drinking. They assumed that, that everybody was drunk. Says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known... To you uh, and heed my words. These are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then he goes on to quote uh, some things in Joel. And this is incredibly profound because I don't know um, if we give this enough weight very often, but after Peter makes the connection between what just happened and this verse in Joel, um, uh, he preaches. Kind of a, like after he makes that connection, the rest of what he does is kind of a combination of his own testimony, what they saw in Jesus, and what's called a Jewish retrospective, 
where Jews will go back and they'll kind of retell the history of Judaism and they'll bring out the high points. It happens in the Psalms over and over again. It's a really common Jewish sermon called the Jewish Retrospective. And so everything else that Peter does uh, can fall under the category of normal, except for this piece. He makes this weird connection between what just happened and this random verse in Joel way, way back when. So in the midst of something completely unique and unprecedented, like the Holy Spirit's arrival with with tongues of fire on their head, I still don't know what that means, and everyone speaking in one language, but everyone else hearing in their own language, and all this stuff, in the midst of all this newness, Peter somehow goes, oh, this is that. This is that thing from way back there. Oh, this... This moment, this is exactly what God said he was going to do. Like to make that connection that as new and bizarre as everything seems right now, this is part of that plan. This is part of that thing that God said he was going to do. So what what I was kind of marveling over here is the confidence that Peter has to make this connection in his very first sermon. I felt like the Holy Spirit wanted us to talk about what it means for God to have a plan. What what it means that God has a plan, because that's what Peter saw. This is not new. This is not some crazy thing. This is exactly what God said he had planned. Uh, because I think both the root of what Peter is saying in his sermon and this kind of deep inner confidence that motivated this dramatic change in culture in the church, that they were able to shift their whole lives to the point that they were selling stuff and going all in, all goes back to the understanding that God has a plan. So, um, Imagine how easy it would have been for Peter to go, I have no idea what's happening, but this is awesome. This is like better than Google Translate. I say one thing and you hear it like in your own language. This is so cool. Um, But he doesn't do that. He says, this is what God has been planning all along because God always has a plan. So what we're going to look at this morning is what it means to us that God has a plan. First, that he has a plan, you know, at all. Second, that he has a plan for you. We're going to talk about that. And then third, how that shapes the culture of the church, how that is supposed to affect the way we live as followers of Jesus. Sound like enough for one morning? I hope so. Um, luckily, Jess is teaching downstairs, and she's just as long-winded as me. So did you guys bring lunch? No. Um, so we're actually going to start with one of God's really, really early plans. Um, and it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, over all the creeping things uh, that creep on the earth. I love this passage because it shows some forethought like in, in God. I've heard a lot of sermons about how God, when he made humans, he made them out of the dirt with his own hands and he got down and personal. Everything else he just spoke into existence and man, he, you know, he made with his hands. And that's super cool. I love that piece. Um, but uh, with you and me, there's also the fact that it, we came with a plan. We came with like a discussion, some deliberation beforehand. Everything else he just spoke and it was. He just said, let there be light. And there was light. Like, he said, let there be this. Like, he just spoke. Um, but with you and me, he was like, you know what we should do? Like, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having a talk together. You know what we should do? We should make people like us and let them kind of rule over the earth. That's what we should do. Like, that, wouldn't that be cool if we did that? And there's some planning and discussion ahead of time. Uh, and then there's a short, tiny little pause, and the Bible says this. So... God created man in his own image and likeness. The image of God he created in male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves 
on the earth. So the Godhead discusses and deliberates and plans for humans um, and what they should be like and the job they should have. Uh, and then once the plan was made, he created. And those are two separate movements. And, there, and those two separate movements doesn't happen with anything else he made, where he plans it, thinks about it, deliberates about it, and then does it. Um, so what this means is that my wife's vacation plans are way closer to God than mine are. <laughs> she can think ahead a little bit. Um, and maybe not quite as deep as planning for humanity, but, but what it really means is that we weren't an accident. You weren't an accident. It wasn't that God just set the universe spinning and you just randomly popped up as a, out of a long string of caused causes. That's not what happened. I think the deliberation inherent in this one verse in Genesis where the Godhead plans out humankind uh, includes you and me. I think God, we were on purpose. God planned for you. He thought through it ahead of time and came up with us. But this is where things get really fun because, as we all know, Adam and Eve messed up um, and they messed up the plan, right? They they boogered it up. Sin entered the story and nothing has gone right since. Um, And now, we're going to kind of get downright cosmic here for a second, so try to track with me um, because this is one of those moments we kind of got to hold in tension the giant cosmic story of humanity and our own personal story um, and, and, and as we hold on to kind of the grand story. So work with me here. As Adam and Eve face God after sinning, not only does God tell them what life is going to look like now, and frankly it doesn't look much like ruling and reigning and subduing the earth like it was supposed to, um, like the original plan, but God uh, tells them, here's what's going to happen now. And he makes them leave the garden that they were made for. Um, and, he, and it starts what we call history, you know, of history unfolding. Uh, and the impact of sin on both the human race and the planet uh, have both, you know, uh, in Jewish literature and Christian literature, we've called that impact the curse. Like that's generally what we call it, that God gave the, the curses. And really, there's only one thing that he says is cursed, and that's the ground for your sake. But we call it, he's like, here's, here's the consequences of your action. Here's what life is going to look like now. And we generally, in, in all Judeo-Christian literature, call that the curses, right? And, uh, and so now we're going to jump from that, the very first chapter of the book, all the way to the very last chapter of the book. Uh, Revelation 22, if you're, if, you're, if you're reading along with me. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it flowed down the center of the main street. And each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit and the fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything. For the throne of God and the Lamb will be there, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will rule forever and ever. And so, uh, this is where the story ends. This is the, and it's using that garden language again, that same language that the story started with. There's trees of life, and there's fruit that heal nations, and there's all this, you know, and there's a river, and all the exact same language we have at the beginning of the book. Um, and, and, and so John is using even the curse language. No longer will there be any curse on anything. And so he's using, he's choosing all that same language that it started with. And then John begins to describe what that life is going to look like. 
Um, and it's really important to pay attention to the, to the, to the pronouns here um, because it's, it's super easy to get lost on them. Uh, some of them are singular, some of them are plural, and it's, you have to track with it. So it's for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and His servants, so God's servants or the Lamb's servants, um, will worship Him, singular. And they, plural, will see His, singular, I didn't highlight that one, but His singular face. And His name will be written on their foreheads. You get the singular and the plural, so we're talking about the Lamb and His people. Uh, and it says, and there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, the people, and they will reign forever and ever. A lot of times when we read this, we assume God and the Lamb are going to reign forever and ever. But through the entire passage, he's saying, he, the Lamb, will do this, that, and the other for them, his people. And then he goes, and they, his people, will reign forever and ever. So we're immediately back to that early story. Let's make man in our image and let's have them reign over, govern over the earth and reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, blah, 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 blah. Like, and so what we're seeing here is that, that humanity was created to reign and to govern and to have dominion. And we boogered up that plan, or did we? That's the big revelation of Revelation 22, is that the plan doesn't change. It's still the plan. So in, the, in this context, God is sitting on the throne, literally being the light of the universe, to say that, and, and it says that people are going to reign forever and ever. And it feels weird to say that we're going to reign, that we're supposed to be the ones that reign, until we go back and say they will reign over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and so on and so forth. So what's happening here is that the very first chapter of your Bible, God makes a plan. And though it might not seem like that plan is happening, it seems like it's all messed up, the God to whom every day is like a thousand years or a thousand years is like a day, does not fret over the destruction of his plan. In fact, at the end of the book, he's like, we get back on track. Don't, don't worry. The plan happens. The plan will, fall, will, 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 will come to fruition. Yes, the curse happened. And yes, uh, everything looks like a mess. But it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stop. Uh, and, and so I walk through all this to say, not only does God have a plan and make plans, but God's plans never fail. That's our second point. God's plans never fail. Not only did he make a plan, his plans are solid. They don't change. They do not fail. Even this grand cosmic plan of let's make humans for this purpose, and it feels like that got boogered up, did not fall apart. That is still the plan. So God is sovereign, and he has a plan, and his plan never fails. But it's the working out of that plan where everything gets really fun. Because when God makes a plan in Genesis 1, and that plan seemingly gets boogered up by Adam and Eve, by Genesis 3, we didn't make it very far in the book, when that thing falls completely apart, God begins the long process of carrying out that original plan. Uh, and he starts right here in Genesis, Genesis 3. He says, Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all other animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Um, and now we know from our New Testament perspective that this is a reference to Satan and Jesus. Um, Jess talked last week about how uh, we have an enemy and his tactics uh, and stuff. But ultimately we know that Jesus crushes Satan's head on Easter morning. And it's a beautiful uh, piece of the story. So, but way back there, we see the plan. 
unfolding um, way back in Genesis 3. We're barely in the book. Uh, and, 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 but we know we've got to get Jesus on the scene, right? That's part of the plan. We know that this, this seed of the woman, whoever it is, is going to crush the enemy's head, has to show up. So God calls one man to start uh, uh, a family. And he called him to leave his father's house um, and, and just follow God. And Abraham obeys, and he goes to follow God. And despite his old age and his wife's barrenness, Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and, and Jacob has 12 sons, uh, one of which is named Judah, uh, who's, who's uh, got some issues. There's some, some very interesting stories about Judah, but, um, but God has special plans for this, for this guy, this guy named Judah, um, and, and, and one of his descendants in particular. Um, so God blesses Judah, and uh, except a famine is coming, and God knows a famine is coming, and God knows that Judah is not likely to make it through this famine. And so God sends some dreams to Judah's little brother. And Judah's little brother, um, in his immaturity, kind of brags about his dreams and gets himself in trouble. And, uh, and, and Judah and his other brothers don't really like this little brother. And so um, they sell him into slavery. And, and it's a horrid thing to do, but they do it. And years later, the famine does come. And Judah and his brothers are about to starve. They're going to die. It's, it's a wicked famine, and they didn't have ways of preserving you know, crops and things back then. And so a famine could wipe out a lot of people. But they hear that there's food in Egypt, that somebody, the governor of Egypt, has stockpiled a bunch of food. And so everybody except the new youngest brother um, goes to, to buy food, and, and, the, and they, they buy food you know, while they're in Egypt. And the famine goes on long enough that they need to go back. And uh, the governor in Egypt had told them if they don't bring their little brother with them, that he won't sell them any more food. And so they take the, the, the littlest brother with them. And, uh, and, and the Egyptian governor turns out to be Joseph, who Judah and his brothers sold into slavery. And, and Joseph wants to save them from starvation. And so he does, especially their dad. He's like, bring, your, bring dad back. Bring you know, the, Benjamin, my, my blood brother, back and and uh and then the dad dies jacob dies and and the brothers are terrified you know they're like i think dad was the only reason joseph didn't kill us we did a pretty horrible thing to him um so they make up a story hey dad told us to remind you not to kill us like you know the way brothers can be um but joseph replied don't be afraid am i god who can punish you you intended harm for me but god intended it all for good he he brought me to this position so i could save the lives of many people. So Judah lives. Judah gets to survive this famine because of this weird thing that he did to his younger brother years ago because God's plan. Because remember, way back in the beginning, God said, I'm going to make somebody that crushes the serpent's head. And so he calls Abraham. I need you to have a baby. And so Abraham has a baby. And then his great-grandson, Judah, you know, becomes important. And he's like, well, Judah's got to make it through this famine. So he does this thing with Joseph. Uh, and then later, another famine, you know, hits and drives a, a, a family uh, out of Israel because what happens is Judah's line runs into a dead end. Like, but he's important. He can't hit a dead end. And so that branch stops and we've got a problem in the story. And so another famine drives a family out of uh, Israel into another land. And then while they're there, a bunch of people die and, and a woman and her daughter-in-law come back. 
And through a cool chain of events, that daughter-in-law marries a man and they have a baby and that, that branch that had, that had stopped now gets a new shoot and, and Obed, you know, gives birth to, Boaz gives birth to Obed and Obed gives birth to such and such who gives birth to Jesse who gives birth to David. And we know David. And so you've got this, this dead end in the story that, that through a cool movement of famine and death and, and terrible things, extends the story again. And Judah's line now has a new shoot and it's going again. And after years, that king dies and uh, and his son dies and uh, such a bad king takes over that, that the whole nation of Israel is split. Ten tribes go one direction, two tribes go another direction. The ten tribes, they get conquered and vanish. And as far as we know, they get assimilated into other groups. We don't see them again. But the tribe of Judah happens to be one of the two that stays in the south and holds on. So we know who Judah is and we know where all that, that line goes. And so Judah and Benjamin make their own nation and they start calling it Judah. And after years, when that northern tribe disappears, Judah, even though they go into captivity, they stay Judah. And this is where we get into kind of the second big thought. Uh, and that is that, that not only does God have a plan and his plan can never fail, but God has a plan for you. God has a plan for you. And this is the part that we like, right? This is the part we lean into. We're like, yeah, we know God has a big cosmic plan, but what does he want for me? That's what's important to me is what does God want for me? And uh, uh, and so most of us are like, God's plan is above my pay grade. He's going to do what he's going to do. I have no say in that anyway. But But what does he want for my life? What do I do tomorrow? What do I do today? If God would just speak to me, his plan for me. And here's the thing. God has a plan. Let us make God in our image. Because what I believe is that God's plan and God's plan for your life are basically the same thing. I think God's plan for you is his plan. Let me explain what I mean by that. Um, God had a plan. Let us make man in our image. Adam and Eve, you know, he has a plan for them and it's to serve the greater plan. They just have to be made. That's their job is to be the, the, the starters of that plan. They get made. Abraham's plan, plan for Abraham's life is to leave his dad's house and have a baby, um, because that served the greater plan. That was part of the plan. God's plan for Joseph was to save Judah. I need you to save your brother because I need your brother down the road. So your plan is, gonna, and the bummer is it's a really rough road to get there. You know, slavery and, 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 you know, uh, he gets accused of, falsely accused of, of taking advantage of Potiphar's wife and thrown in prison again. And it's a terrible, you know, Ruth and Boaz's part of the plan was to meet and make a baby. That's a great part of the plan. That's a fun part of the plan. Like I, but, but it all serves the grand plan, right? Uh, even Jesus stepped into his role in the plan. Father, if there's any way for this cup to leave me, let it, let, let it pass. But not my plan, your plan be done. You know, we, we tend to say, it says not my will, but your will be done. But he's basically saying, but if this is the plan, I want to do my part in your plan. God's plan is God's plan for you. Which brings me to a very important point. God, including us in his plan, is not the same as us, including God, in our plan. God, including you in his plan, is not the same as you, including God, in your plan. 
And this is where things get tricky, right? One of the most popular verses in the Bible talks about God's plan. And it says it best. We, we read this to most graduates this time of year. It's one of those things we read all the time. And it, it says, For you know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. Don't you wish that's what it said? For you know the plans I have for you. That's not what it says. It would be awesome if that's what it said. It'd be awesome. But no, it says, I know the plans I have for you. And I have no intention of telling you. I know the plan. I wish it said you know. You know. But no, I know the plans I have for you. I know. One of the key elements of Open Table's vision statement reads like this. Open Table Community Church is a community organized by and around the Word of God to cooperate in the mission of God. All the church planting literature all says you have to have a mission statement. You have to have a mission statement that tells you where you're going. And we, I thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. The more I decided, like, I'm not smart enough for that. Like, I, I'm not smart enough to know where we're supposed to go. That's so far above my pay grade. Joseph's played an integral part of bringing the Messiah to earth. Like, he is key in bringing the Messiah to earth. Literally saved the tribe of Judah which is where Jesus came from. And his life was a mess. Like if he had said, God, tell me your plan for me. And God was like, okay. Joseph would have been like, and I'm out. <laughs> like, I'm going to find, hey, Buddha. Like, right? Like, let me go a different route here. But if he doesn't play that role, what happens? What mission statement do you attach to, to, to Joseph's life? What, what mission statement does Joseph choose? Here's my mission. I'm going to be a slave. I'm going to get wrongly accused. I'm going to have somebody forget about me so that I have to stay an extra couple years in prison. That's my mission. No, Joseph was toward the end of his life before he figured out his role in the grand story. Oh, you meant this for evil, but God meant this to save people. Now I get it. Jess talked last week about how we have this tendency to blame like the enemy for all kinds of things. We blame the enemy for everything. Anybody here have a junk drawer at home? Please, yeah, okay. I've got like six. Like, I, I love junk drawers. Like, they're my favorite. Esther hates them. I've got like one in every dresser I have. Like, leave the top drawer open just for all the things that don't have a place yet. Like, they all go in there. And uh, we have we have several. And... Uh, and, you know, everybody's like, all the organizations are like, junk drawers are terrible. There's no reason to have them. Everything should have a place, and you put it in its place. Like, and that's like step number one, if you ever watch those organizing shows. Yeah, <laughs> finally got an amen out of Judy. Um, so, you know, they're all like, there's no reason to have a junk drawer. Organize that stuff. Find homes for it. Put it away. Um, but, uh, but in church, I think we, our junk drawer is Satan, right? If we don't know what something is, well, it must be Satan. We just throw everything in that in that drawer. I don't understand what's happening in my life right now. It's Satan. You know, I'm hurting and confused. It's obviously Satan. I don't have enough money. I don't have all the money I need. It must be Satan. I don't feel good. It's obviously Satan. When in doubt, blame Satan. Right? That's pretty much it. He's our junk drawer. If we don't know where it goes, we throw it at the enemy. It goes in that drawer there. Except that's almost the opposite of the way the early church lived, the culture of the early church. In the fourth book of Acts. Uh, fourth chapter of the book of Acts, the, the apostles were living the way they were supposed to be living. 
they're they're being faithful. They're living in deep fellowship with other believers. They're they're active in ministry. They're they literally just healed a guy who had been lame for his entire life. Like they're doing it. And in the midst of all this godly living, they get arrested and they get told that talking about Jesus is now going to be illegal. They're beaten. And what is their response to all that? They thanked God for being counted worthy to suffer. They were like, thank you, God, that we are being counted worthy to suffer for this message. And they prayed for boldness to keep on preaching despite what was happening, despite all this resistance. Not for one second did they question whether or not God had a plan. They just assumed he had a plan and this was part of it. That, that this is part of what God is doing right now. Not for one second did they think that Satan could actually do anything to stop the plan. They just prayed that they would do their part well. God, give us boldness to keep on going and keep on pressing into this plan that you have to get your message out. Which brings us to the third big idea of this morning. Having established that God has a plan and that His plan will never fail and, and having established that His plan is for us to join in that grand plan, um, how does this shape the culture of the kingdom of God? Uh, what does it look like to actually live aware that God has a plan? And first, I have to say this is a whole new framework for approaching life. And in my opinion, you know, we start to live in a new kingdom when we, when we embrace this framework. When we start to live um, as though we, we serve a God who has a real plan for our life. Like we live in this world, but not really in this world. We live different um, when we start to live by this framework, uh, we move through the through life completely differently. So um, when we wake up on Monday morning, we wake up assuming God has a plan for this Monday. God, this is not just a day that I drag myself through. God has a plan for me today. God has something he wants me to do today. We aren't just going to work like we do every other Monday. We're actually choosing to join God in his plan for the world. That I have a purpose for being here and I'm choosing God. And this is where it gets really important to recognize the difference between God including you in His plans and you including God in your plans. Because what we have a tendency to do um, is, is, is work some spiritual disciplines and elements into our life. Um, and just kind of we work a little bit of God into our plan. Right, we might add a quiet time, or we might pray, or or come to church on Sundays or some Sundays, and and we might read a Christian book, and and all these things are awesome. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. Uh, don't get me wrong; these are all really healthy things uh, that should be added. But that's very different than changing the core of your life. Um, and you know, because really, I I heard a missionary speak one time, and he had been invited uh, on kind of a guest speaking thing to this place where this, these local missionaries had had, uh, had done a lot of work amongst these, uh, these, these kind of tribal people. And he came and he spoke and like the whole tribe was getting saved. Like all kinds of people were getting saved. And he was super excited. They were all coming to the altar and, and, uh, and he was leading people to Jesus. And, and it was super cool. And after one of the events, he catches the local pastor's face and the guy looks really disappointed. The guy looks completely bummed. And, and so he can't figure out why he's not like, he's like, dude, I came and just changed your whole dynamic. How can you not be excited? This is amazing. Look how many people are getting saved. And so he, he, after the thing is over, he pulls the pastor aside and the pastor, um, invited him to, to do some home visits the next day. Let's go visit some of these new people who got saved and invite them to the church and, and, uh, 
and, uh, and, and you'll see what's bugging me. And so they start going to the, these houses. They just knock and they go in. And, and, you know, while people are getting refreshments or whatever, the, the pastor points out to the missionary the, the altar in every house. There's a, a shelf. And, and I guess in this tribe they would carve their altars out of soap. They didn't have any other materials. So they would carve altars out of the soap. And every shelf had a little Jesus statue next to all the other statues. And this was what was disappointing the, the pastor. is like none of these people changed anything. They just added Jesus as one of their gods. They, yeah, they said they accepted him. But all they really did was, was put him in with all the other ones. He's just now another one of their little idols that... Uh, that he put up every single house that they went to had them. And, and I, I wish our, I, I kind of wish our culture still had like old school idolatry so we could see how much of this actually goes on. Because I think a lot of us, a lot of us tend to do this. We, we, we tend to just kind of add Jesus into the list of all the other things we worship. Um, we, uh, we don't necessarily change anything. Earlier this year, I was reading, um, a first century historian who is giving a little commentary um, on Acts 15, which I've always struggled with. Um, in Acts 15, all the leaders of the church and the elders and apostles um, held their very first ever church council to try and determine what to do with all the non-Jewish believers. Because Jesus was a Jew, he came in fulfillment of a very Jewish story. Um, everything that had been written about Jesus and his coming all came from a Jewish context Everything about Jesus was Jewish, and so it seemed logical to a lot of people that if you're going to worship Jesus, you have to become a Jew, like he's a Jewish Messiah. It doesn't make any sense to worship him outside of that context. And so a lot of the people were going, yeah, if you want to worship Jesus, that's great. We'll let anybody worship Jesus. Everybody's welcome. Just convert to Judaism and worship Jesus with us. And there was other people that were like, except it seems like Judaism was supposed to bring you to Jesus. So once you have Jesus, it seems like a step backwards to go you know, back to the thing that was supposed to bring you Jesus. And there was a pretty sincere and see, we have a tendency to read it like there was a good guy side and a bad guy side. I mean, this, this is heavy stuff. They were working out some pretty heavy stuff. And so they have a council to do it. Um, and, the, and, the, uh, and to sort it all out, the leaders deliberated for a long time and they prayed and they decided there was no logical reason for Gentiles to become Jewish to worship Jesus. And this is kind of gave the official birth to the Gentile church, which um, leads all the way to here this morning. Like, and everything that's come out of it comes from Acts 15, from this moment. But these leaders wrote kind of an official letter to be circulated amongst all the churches with these new policy changes in it, and they included in it um, a, a short list of rules. Like there's like four or five rules they included in it. Like, but hey, you do have to follow these. And honestly, it's the weirdest list. It has always baffled me. I've never gotten it. Um, mostly because it seems so arbitrary. Like I can understand if they did the Ten Commandments. You know, like, hey, you do not have to become Jewish. You don't have to get circumcised. But the Ten Commandments are kind of the root foundation of the whole thing. So maybe follow these. Yeah, I can see that. I can see if they did, hey, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said those, so you don't even have to be Jewish to follow those. Let's do those. Like, those are your only rules. Let's follow those rules. Um, but, he, but he doesn't. Like, and I can see if they even try to condense the Sermon on the Mount down to like some kind of little behavioral code. Like, these are the things. Don't, you know, be nice to people. You know, whatever. Uh, but he doesn't do that. Um, instead, they pick this bizarre little list 
that says this. For it seemed good to the, this is what they send in their letter. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. You will do well. Farewell. That's the weirdest list, right? Of all the things that we come up with, what it means to live the Christian life. How many of you are like, hey, no strangled animals? Like, that's not okay. Did you check where that steak came from? Did they drain it or did they strangle it? Like, how many of us have ever done this? Like, and it's weird. So as a theologian, and maybe you might say a, a moralist, I've, I have wrestled to make sense out of this list for years. Like, for years and years. Um, uh, of all the things to value, why these? Why are these the important ones? And then I'm reading this historian who has no theological dog in the fight. He's not a moralist. He's just... A historian. And he's giving some commentary on this. And he says, oh, those are all elements of pagan worship in the first century. He's a first century Roman historian. And that's like his, he's like one of the, one of the most forerunning historians, first century historians on the planet. He's like, oh, those are all elements of pagan worship in that day. Like he just jumped off at him like that. And so he's like, so this, it's not a list. What he's saying is, no, you don't have to become Jewish, but you can't stay pagan. He's saying, you don't have to become Jewish, but that doesn't mean you don't have to change. You absolutely have to change what you're doing. He was like, it probably would have been better if it wasn't a list. If he just said, no, you don't have to become Jewish and worship you know, our way, but you have to quit worshiping idols. Like You definitely have to quit all the, the, the complete pagan stuff. So you don't need to get circumcised. You don't need to eat kosher or wear a yarmulke, but, but it doesn't mean you don't change everything. About yourself. Yes, you absolutely change everything. You can't just add your Jesus statue to all your other statues. This changes everything, which makes me wonder what the list would look like today. What would you, like if, if the apostles came and they were like, you know, hey, here's a few things I thought I might mention. Like if you want to believe in Jesus. No, you don't have to become a Jew, but let's talk about your schedule and your busyness. You can't say amen, at least say ouch. Um, no, you don't have to be circumcised, but let's talk about your relationship to social media. No, you don't have to eat kosher, but let's talk about your politics and your attachment to your political parties. Yes, you can now eat bacon, but let's talk about your independence and your rejection of to live in community. You can take off your yarmulke, but what about your stress and fear? This is supposed to change everything. Understanding that God has a plan, a real plan, a plan that cannot fail is supposed to change everything about who we are. It's a whole new framework for living. And you might say, Chris, look around. Check the evidence. Things are not going God's way. God's plan is not happening on this earth. And how secure did plan did God's plan seem to Joseph as he was chained to an Ishmaelite trading convoy, being drugged through the desert to Egypt. In fact, one of the things I always love about Joseph, like interpreting Pharaoh's dream when he shows up and Pharaoh has a dream, is Joseph was running 500 at that point, 50-50. Like, I don't know where he got the confidence, because he had had those dreams when he was a kid, and now it's like years later and they still haven't come to pass. So as far as he knows, those are shot. Like, got those wrong. I got the baker and the cupbearer in prison, right? I'm running 500. Yeah, I'll give it a shot. Like, how do you feel the confidence he felt when you're like, honestly, 
Pharaoh, I think I can do it, but I'm 50-50. <laughs> I miss as often as I hit. So let's see how this goes. No, he steps up and says, you know, here's what's going to happen and here's what you need to do about it. But, but how did God's plan look at that point? Looking at the evidence, how in control did God seem to Joseph as he's sitting in prison? Everything we know of the Jewish people and the lineage of, of Jesus, our Savior, the, the King of the Kingdom of God, is all sitting in this camp of starving, this starving family. And Judah is on the edge of death and decides to go get... So how, how in charge of the story did God seem as, as Judah is starving in a famine and has to travel to Egypt? On the brink of extinction, how, in, how, how is God's plan looking at that point in history if you're looking at evidence? And of course we know that, that God had a, a secret weapon sitting in the governor's seat, you know, as Judah's about to die. God's like, dude, I've been planning for this for a long time. Just relax. How was God's plan looking when Moses showed up to free God's people? And not only does Pharaoh say no, but he increases the people's work. And when he finally lets people, God's people go, he changes his mind and sends the strongest army on the planet to chase this 100% defenseless group of people and pins them up against the Red Sea. How is God's plan looking at that point? But we, we find out God had a, a strong east wind in his pocket. Don't worry, I've got this taken care of. And how does God's plan look when, we're, when they were pulling the dead body of Jesus down off the cross and wrapping it up to put it in a tomb? How is God's plan looking at that point? Second Corinthians 5.7 says, We live by believing, not by seeing. We have a Bible full of stories that should bring this verse to life for us. Story after story, everything looking lost, but God coming through to continue the story. I have every reason to believe that God has a plan and nothing in heaven or earth or hell can stop that plan. I have every reason to walk by faith and not by sight. And yet, the second I run out of coffee, like, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We fall completely apart. Things aren't going my way. God's plan is dead. The realization that God has a plan and that plan includes us and that it can never fail is supposed to change everything. And I believe all the weird peace and confidence and boldness that we read about in the Scripture starts right here. This whole atmosphere of everybody being willing to sell stuff, being willing to live in community, being willing to change their whole life starts right here. That God has a plan. The fact that the early church trusted God when they were being martyred and scattered and beaten and imprisoned and sometimes going hungry and seeing crazy miracles and seeing people join this weird little company of people. The reason that the, that willingness was there was because they knew God had a plan, that God was in control. So how do we respond to this? As much as I love spontaneity, um, after 30 years with my wife, I've grown to much prefer 
the peace of knowing where we're going on vacation. Uh, she has a plan, and I know all I have to do is show up and work the plan. And that, that does bring a lot of peace to my life now. No more huddling in a seedy hotel room to pray for the van. Um, <laughs> but even more, I love the deep and abiding peace of knowing God has a plan. Because here's the deal. My plans can fail. Uh, without a doubt. I'm not guaranteed success for any of my plans just because I believe in Jesus. Jesus is not like a magic ingredient that I can add to all of my plans to ensure success. That's not how it works. My plans can fail. And if I felt for one second like the whole story was riding on me getting it right and my plans working out, I could not handle that weight. But knowing that Revelation 22 is at the end of the story, at the end of my Bible, and though I I still live in the pages between... I still live between Genesis 1 and Revelation 22. Knowing that the final chapter is in my Bible and that God's plan is going to come to fruition no matter what gives me peace. Because I don't have to get it perfect for God to make His plan a reality. Instead, what I do is I wake up and I ask, God, how do I serve Your plan today? And here's what it, the beauty of the paradigm shift, if we can get it right. It's not about you. That's a big thing to get. It's not about you. You don't have to wake up every morning and cry out to heaven, oh my God, what is your plan for me today? What if I get it wrong? What if I don't do it right? What if it, what if it doesn't happen? Because it's not about you. Waking up knowing deep in your guts that God has a plan for today and you've been invited to be a part of that means that you can wake up and do the things you're supposed to do. Live faithfully, work hard, love those around you, live in deep connection with other believers, stay acutely aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. You can do those things because you can walk humbly with God knowing that God is is a big God. He has a big plan that He's working and has been working and you are simply not big enough to thwart that. You're not big enough. You are invited for your good to join into that plan and to do the things that God has laid out because they're good for you. The most often repeated command in Scripture is fear not. Fear not. And I think to to obey that command is to know God has a plan. My kids woke up every morning of vacation with like fire in their eyes and one question, what are we doing today? No pressure to make anything happen. No, uh, no stress, no fear, no burden. Just the absolute assumption that there's a plan for today and it's going to be awesome. What if we were childlike like that? Well, we just woke up in the morning and we knew God had a plan and we can't wait to see what it is. We know we don't have to make it happen because God's way better at planning vacations than we are. We just wake up and go, what are we doing today? What if, we, what if we respond to this message by assuming God has a plan for tomorrow? And our job is just to wake up with fire in our eyes and ask Him, what are we doing today? Jesus' famous statement in John 14 that we quote so often, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6, we quote this one all the time, is actually given in response to a question. 
that Thomas asks about the plan. Jesus said something like, I'm going, you know where I'm going, blah, blah, blah. And Thomas was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. I don't know where you're going. Where are you going? Tell me where you're going. I need a map. I need to know the plan. I need a blueprint. I need to know what's happening. I need to know that you have a future and a hope. You know, that verse in Jeremiah, Jesus said, I am the plan. I am the way. You don't need a map. Just stay with me. I'm the plan. Your job is to walk with me. That's the plan. If God gave me a blueprint, I know exactly what I would do. First, I would analyze it and decide if this is the way I want to go or not. Is this what I want this to look like? Then I'd probably whine about the parts I don't like. Hold on, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this part. Come on. I would debate <laughs> endlessly about if I, you know what, I think would be a better plan, God. Here's what I think would be a better plan. And the worst part is I think I would overlook what God is doing in my life today because I'd be focused on the end result. I, I would miss today. If he gave me the, the blueprint, I would not stop looking down there and I would miss what he's doing right here. But Jesus says, I don't need a blueprint because I have him. I don't need a map because I have him. He is the way. My job is to trust by faith, not sight, that he knows where we're going. And the surest way for me to get there is by staying with him. So the way I'd love to respond to this message as the band comes up and, and prepares for us is just to take a minute. We've been doing this through this series. I kind of like it. And just let, let's just give the Holy Spirit a minute to, to talk to us. I covered a lot of ground today. I said a lot of things, and maybe not all of it's for you. Maybe not all of it is, is, is where you're living right now, but, but maybe some of it is. And, and my words aren't important enough for you to change your life over, but God's words are. And so we're just going to take a minute and let the Holy Spirit speak to us and, and maybe uh, bring back to our remembrance the thing that he wants us to take home today.